can I say to all the people who have not been around over Christmas, Happy New Year, hello, lovely to see you, hope to catch up with you. Um, it's lovely to be together and share communion together. Um, and as we kind of jump into John 19, it will probably feel like plunging in uh, to the deep end. It's been a while since we've been here as we come back into John's gospel. And from Christmas, probably what feels a bit of a gear shift. You know, we've had nativities and promises and carols, and now we've got the, the brutal death and crucifixion of, of Jesus. Um, John's gospel isn't easy, is it anyway? There's, there's lots going on. It's packed full of meaning and symbolism. And, uh, and what is more, we're going to add in the, the, the heavy execution. So coming out of Christmas into the new year, it might feel a bit of a gear shift. Um, but as I've reflected on it and, and thought on it, as we move into 2024, uh, with another year ahead, uh, as I've been thinking on John's gospel, the more I think the portrait that John gives us of Jesus is just so superb and so magnificent and just really helpful for our time. Um, the world is in moving at an incredibly fast pace, isn't it? It's noisy, um, it's constantly changing, it's incredibly confused, it is ferocious, uh, the world we live in. And in real sharp contrast, uh, John gives us a portrait of Jesus, of someone who is steady, who doesn't change, who is clear, who is in control. Despite what is happening around, Jesus is always knows what's going on uh, when. He is mighty, isn't he? But yet he's gentle. He claims to be Lord, but yet he's so lowly of heart. And I think as we approach these passion narratives, John 19 and 2021, 20, there's no better place really to illustrate just how in control he is in a very dark world. We're going to hit Jesus' most darkest moments, but I think Jesus just shines all the brighter and just gives us real hope. Uh, for the time that we live. Um, the nights are getting a touch lighter, aren't they? Moving out of Christmas. Don't know if you've noticed, it's not as dark, but we are still in that kind of wintry, wintry season of dark evenings. It's quite funny. We arrived late on Friday to uh, Brillington Beach. We were visiting Sally and Richard. They've got their holiday there, so we thought we would crash them and uh, annoy them. Um, Joe was so keen all kind of Christmas holiday to see the sea. That's all she wanted to do. So the loving parents we are, we got there about half past four when it was really dark um, and she, was, she wasn't impressed. Um, she didn't appreciate it at all. Uh, but it was really interesting to be, I don't know if you've ever been to the seaside when it's dark. I don't know if you've walked to the beach when it's dark. It's the most eerie experience. I don't know if you, this might just be me, my, my weirdness, thinking way too much about it. Um, normally the sea for me is something you want to jump into, you want to explore, you want to have fun in. But when you go in the dark, it's, it's it, yeah, a sense of danger. Uh, you want to move away from it. It's the choppy waves and the wind make it feel like chaos. But one thing I noticed as well, as you look out on the horizon, your eyes are always drawn to the lights. Uh, to the little places of safety and the heavier the darkness falls down the clearer the lights become well I think that's a little bit like Jesus in John's 
gospel as we enter back into John we're jumping back into a nighttime scene it's dark all around um, for those who know John and how he writes darkness is symbolic of a world at odds with God uh, symbolic of rebellion of unbelief and chapter 18 and 19 Jesus darkest moments uh, that is all dialed up to the max Jesus is in the middle of an illegal trial his friends have left him. Peter has openly denied him. Uh, the Jewish authorities have beaten him. Uh, they've come to Pilate to have him crucified because it isn't lawful for them to do so. And the Roman authorities, I think, just think the whole thing is beneath them. Um, this is a Jewish squabble that they really don't want to deal with. I think for Pilate, at least, he doesn't really care about it. Uh, it's almost childish. Uh, irrelevant and just inconvenient but as we walk through these darkest moments for for Jesus and really for human history I think John wants us to glimpse the light of who he is in all this darkness around him to see the portrait again of this steady gentle clear truthful Lord in the center of all the darkness of around all the choppy waters and chaos chaos that's swirling all around him and I really think this can help us because uh, don't we feel, and I'm not talking about the light outside anymore, but the, the darkness all around us. Don't we live in a time where, um, I don't know how, uh, if, you, if you pay attention to like the, the cultural moment that we're in, um, I don't know if you can count all the possible ideologies, the possible movements, events, scandals, that just dominate the, the headlines, to which to me shout a little bit like the Jewish authorities in our passage to Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. They, they shout that to, to Christianity, at least I, I feel that way. Uh, there's darkness in our own lives, isn't there? And how do we hold on to faith in the midst of such noisy, ferocious unbelief? How do we deal with our own hearts at times when they want to and they want to follow suit. Well, again, John shows us the light. As John states at the start of his gospel, the light shines in the darkness. And despite the darkness being so ferocious, the darkness has not overcome the light. And nowhere, I think, do we see this so clearly than as Jesus walks this path to his death calmly, quietly, in full control so I hope you won't mind the gear shift and jumping back into me with this uh, jumping back in with me to this brilliant gospel as we start 2024 spending just some time recapturing the extraordinary portrait that Christ is as John's penned it for us um, as I read today we're going to focus on um, the sentencing of Jesus and uh, towards the end I want us to see just the irony of this passage um, uh, in his sentencing to his death, what we think is his sentencing to his death, is really just his inauguration as the king of life. But hopefully we'll get there in the end. Um, before we get there, I want to just make a few comments uh, on some of the details of the story, just to help us get in to see what's happening, simply just to colour uh, what is going on, uh, particularly between Pilate 
and the religious leaders they're very much the darkness and the chaos swirling all around Jesus and then towards the end we'll look at Jesus and look at the look at the light himself and the irony that's all around so let's have a look let's color in the details of this passage and see what's happening in the story um, so verse 1 chapter 19 Pilate took Jesus out to be flogged uh, there are various floggings that this uh, could have been it seems that this was the lighter of the spectrum of floggings that could have been um, and the soldiers verse 2 at this point after he's flogged twist a crown of thorns uh, that's probably made from the long spikes of what's called a date palm tree um, into his head and in addition they put a robe around him and strike him on the face and hail him as king of the Jews they pretend that this is the king uh, Pilate in verse 4 I think through all of this was hoping that this would all be enough for the Jewish leaders that they would be satisfied and they would kind of forget the whole matter uh, and so verse 5 Jesus is brought out in this robe with this crown of thorns swollen face and paraded in front of them all and Pilate declares I think sarcastically behold the man in other words he's saying you want this guy crucified look at him behold him what can he really do why are you so precious to have him executed and verse 6 when they saw him that is the crowds they cried out all the more crucify him crucify him see Pilate could not get rid of them and the crowds with this light flogging and the soldiers mockery and brutality of Jesus and so verse 6b Pilate comes again again with a sarcastic comment towards the Jews really showing how I think arrogant he is in the position that he is of governor and he says look verse 6 do it yourself I find no guilt in him uh, and he's basically saying I think uh, oh you you can't crucify him can you because we're the ones who are in charge and he's teasing and mocking the crowd you don't have any power here uh, the reason for that is AD 6 uh, was when Rome took hold of Judea and with that they took hold of the judicial power and including capital punishment um, they withdrew it from the Jews and as the occupying power they invested it in their Roman governors so verse 7 the Jews use this and say okay then uh, Pilate as ruling governor over us it's your job to keep the peace and we have a law that's been broken uh, around Leviticus uh, if anyone blasphemes if anyone makes himself the son of God which Jesus is doing or they're claiming to do this is blasphemy and in, and it's one of our laws and Pilate you must uphold it verse 8 Pilate's reaction is fear what do you think Pilate was afraid of uh, afraid that um, that he's going to have to bend to the crowd I don't think so Don Carson puts it like this that it's his own superstitious belief that he could be doing harm to some divine figure 
the news that this could be someone divine put fear in his heart. This wouldn't be good karma. I've, I've injured someone with divine attributes. And so Pilate is worried. I've had him flogged. I must have upset someone with divine attributes, which is why he takes Jesus in and questions him. Where exactly, Jesus, are you from? Jesus remains silent, just looks back at him. But verse 10, he gets frustrated with the silence and Pilate reminds him, look, I'm the governor. I'm the one with authority to have you crucified. You should answer. Now we'll come back in a second to Jesus' response. Sorry, Andrew, do you mind just turning me down a touch? It might just nick, nick off that. There we go, thank you. Um, yeah, verse 10, he gets frustrated with his silence. Pilate reminds them that I have the authority to crucify you, you should answer. And we'll come back to um, that Jesus' response in just a second. But for Pilate, he has failed to get anywhere with Jesus, hasn't he? He's probably worried this divine of this divine figure. And so verse 12, if you look at it, he seeks to have him released. He wants just to get this out of his hands now this superstitious thought is too much and maybe he's ushering to the soldiers for them to remove the crown of thorns or take off the purple robe because the Jews interrupt this they cry out if you release this man you are no friend of Caesar and here is Pilate's weakness Tiberius Caesar apparently he was an impatient and paranoid ruler if Pilate was seen to be failing in his duty to deal with this obvious sedition it would come down hard on Pilate and he could not afford that not Tiberius Caesar with his paranoia and so the Jews have found the right way in you are no friend of Caesar that's actually an official political title that he could have held and so the Jews here are hinting that you know if you release him we might just dob you in and you'll become a traitor to Rome rather than a friend and it's this that turns Pilate there's only one ruler for Pilate and that is Caesar so Jesus is brought out in front of the crowd a place called Gabatha. It's a stone pavement. Apparently it's approximately 3,000 square feet. And Pilate brings him out and takes his position as judge over him. And here you've got this incredible moment. Jesus is there in the docks. He's bloodied. He has a crown of thorns, a purple robe. He's been struck. He's been swollen. He's been flogged. And here he is ready for sentencing. Pilate once again with Jesus in view sarcastically to the Jews behold your king do you really want me to crucify this guy and alarmingly the Jews we have no king but Caesar Pilate is swayed by the crowd he he's too weak he's too hard pressed he gives Jesus over to be crucified and what's more the religious leaders are willing to betray what they deeply value they bow the knee to their spiritual and political enemy Caesar 
in order to have this man crucified. It's crazy, isn't it? The, the, the amount of unbelief, uh, the amount of illogical behavior to get Jesus sentenced. It really fulfills what, Jesus, uh, what John says at the start. He came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. They rejected him. The darkness is thick and heavy, isn't it, around the Lord Jesus? But as I said at the start, I think John's intention is for us not to look at the chaos that's going around, but the light in the middle of it all, the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus, in all this, has barely said a word. I think he's got 30 words in this passage, but he's been mocked and humiliated in front of all these people. How is it that he could remain so composed? Well, John writes this account not as an interesting history. He's not just trying to tell us the facts of what happened. He's an evangelist. Uh, he's a pastor. He's, he's wanting to see it through the theological lens that he has to what these events are really all about. And I think one thing we can take away is that Jesus, in remaining calm, is really trusting his father's plan. He knows that he's in the grip of his father. This will become more explicit next week when we look at the next part of this. But digging under the surface of our passage, you can see the scriptures at work, um, particularly um, Isaiah 50. Now, that is just reverberating uh, in this uh, passage. Let me just read you a couple of lines. I offered my back to those who beat me my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I didn't hide my face from mocking and spitting. Jesus would have known these words of this suffering servant in Isaiah. And not only now is he living out the fulfillment of them, but I'm sure he's, he's resting in them. They keep him calm and composed because he knows what God has said and how it's being used. And he's trusting in God's promises. The suffering servant in Isaiah is able to do all that because Isaiah goes on, because the Lord, because the sovereign Lord helps me. The reason why he can get people to pull out his beard and, and people spit in his face because he knows that I will not be disgraced, he says. I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Jesus bringing this and applying it to himself, I'm sure, can offer his back to be flogged, his beard to be plucked, his face for mocking and spitting, because he knows the sovereign plan of his Father in heaven. Scripture here is not just being fulfilled. For Jesus, I think he's, he's standing on it, and it brings calmness and composure. He's resting on the promises. And can I just say, as really a side point, um, that those scriptures that apply to Jesus, as we have put our faith in him, those promises are now ours. Uh, the sovereign Lord will help us. He will not bring us to disgrace. He will not put us to shame. He who vindicates us is near to us. These are promises for us too. Through the person of who Jesus is and all that he has done for us, we can equally hold on to the scriptures that Jesus had as we walk our dark paths at times. So he's trusting in his father's 
plan. The scriptures are at work. God is speaking and he knows it. Uh, But also, you can see him trusting in his father's plan in his response to Pilate. I said we'll come back to that in verse 10 and 11. Uh, He knows the sovereignty of God is at work. Uh, You remember after being so frustrated, Pilate, at Jesus' silence, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? Answer me. Jesus says, you can do nothing apart from what is given to you from above. In other words, Pilate, you are not in control. And whatever you decide is only because God in heaven has given it to you. It's interesting that Jesus says that the greater sin, therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. I think that's referring to Caiaphas, although it depends who you read, there's different opinions. But what's clear for me is that not only is Caiaphas potentially guilty of how he's treated Jesus with all the power that he had, the power that Pilate has been given from above, Jesus is saying, look, you've got a decision as well. How are you going to treat me? He doesn't excuse Pilate by saying, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin how you respond to me matters Pilate and what are you gonna do and as we know the crowd is all too much Caesar is all too much and he hands him over to be delivered but Jesus is full fully aware of his father's plan he knows who's in charge and that's kind of the first lens I think that John is trying to get us to see that Jesus is trusting in his father's plan Uh, the second lens It's really kind of how John puts this together. And there is such an irony to this passage. It is dripping off the page. Um, The soldiers mock Jesus, don't they? And they say, hail, king of the Jews. Uh, We've heard how Pilate says, behold the man. Look at this pathetic person in front of us. Behold your king, he declares sarcastically. But Don Carson puts this, and I love the way he puts this. He says, despite their, um, how they mock him, he says, here indeed is the man. Here indeed is the eternal word made flesh. All the witnesses were too blind to see it at the time, but this man was displaying his glory, the glory of the one and only son in the very disgrace and and weakness and brutalization that Pilate advanced as a subtle events uh, evidence as a suitable evidence sorry that he was a judicial irrelevance so it's a bit wordy but can you hear what he's saying all the witnesses were blind to the displaying of God's glory in this man Pilate advanced a suitable evidence he had him flogged and beaten and labeled as a judicial irrelevance but the irony is it's all true here is king of the jews here is the god man here is the king in his full glory Pilate passed him as irrelevant but john highlights to us that this is all true and this is god's wisdom in action isn't it What we think is his sentencing is actually his 
inauguration as as the king of life what is his suffering crown of thorns is his crown of glory Paul will write later that none of the rulers of this age understood God's wisdom for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory here is God's wisdom at work and as we've been kind of reflecting on over Christmas Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind, wasn't he? He He's a man full of suffering, familiar with pain. But the irony is, surely he took up our pain. He bore our sufferings. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. I hope with this irony and God's wisdom at work we can read this passage and when the soldiers mock him hail king of the Jews we read it with thanksgiving and worship when Pilate presents him look here is your king in a sarcastic tone we can say amen here he is here is my suffering servant here is the one standing in my place giving me life through his death. It's the deep irony of this whole passage. They mock him and ridicule him, but it's all entirely true. Have we come to know and understand and apply how God works, his wisdom? Because we need to know it. Because it's essential for us, not only to to receive salvation, but also to grow in in our faith. If we don't get how God works, we'll make the wrong choices. Pilate put him as irrelevant. And the danger is if we see him and don't see God's wisdom at work, we will think him irrelevant too. But here is the king of glory crowned, taking our sin for us. The reason why we need it to move on in our faith as well is because uh, the New Testament doesn't just call us to hail him from a distance. Jesus is on the judgment seat, isn't he? He's being sentenced. And we might say, yeah, there is my king taking my sin for me. But the call of the New Testament really is if, if we say he's my king, the call is for us to join him to take up our cross and follow him as well. In John 12:35, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What, is, what are you saying, Jesus? Well, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will also my servant be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Can you see how Jesus is calling us to to join us where he's going? To take up our cross, to, to lose our life that we might gain it. That's what happened to Jesus and that is what he's calling for us to do. Hebrews 13, 13, the writer attempting to help um, the people he's writing to follow Jesus, admit, um, throughout really hard times and persecuting times says, let us go outside the camp and bear the approach, the reproach that he suffered. Let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach 
that he suffered. There's a real call for us to follow where Jesus has gone, to take up our cross. And if we cannot see how God flips the wisdom of the world, we will never do it. See, to be able to stand as Jesus did with the composure he did, he knew how God's wisdom worked. He knew that his, the sovereign Lord was reigning over. He knew that his God would vindicate him. He knew, chapter 18, verse 36, that God's kingdom is not of this world. It will look different. It will be different. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. As we look at the cross, we see that in action. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Do we get a vision from this passage, from this deep irony of how God works in his world? As we see our king displayed in weakness, do we see that that's our path too? We're in a kingdom where God turns the weakness into strength, where he turns the lowly into, uh, to be exalted. If we claim him as our king, are we willing to join him in that, to take up our cross, to let go of ourselves and follow where he might want us to follow? Ironically, with all that I've said about the world and how noisy it is, I found a brilliant prayer on Twitter. <laughs> Um, and this is just great to close. Let me, let me read this to you. Lord, you have brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see you in the heights. I'm hemmed in by the mountains of sin, but I behold your glory. Lord, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. And that to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is actually to receive and that the valley is the place of vision lord in the daytime stars they can be seen from the deepest wells and the deeper the wells the brighter the stars shine so lord let me find your light in my darkness let me find your life in my death let me find your joy in my sorrow your grace in my sin your riches in my poverty and your glory in my valley doesn't Jesus just live that and in his valley just display the glory of God as he wins salvation for the world have you received this wisdom can you say of this bloodied humiliated man that this is your king 
And if so, are we willing to follow likewise? To be the one who is humiliated. To be the one that is sidelined. Because like Jesus, in the midst of a dark world, we will shine like stars. And people will see the glory of the Lord Jesus. Let me pray as we close. Father, give us a real sense of the vision of your kingdom. And Lord, it's hard to look at as we see Christ displayed here in weakness. But, we, but Lord, we thank you that your weakness is stronger than our strength. And in this moment, thank you that you took our pain, that you took our sorrows, that you healed us, that you forgave us for all our sins as we've been celebrating this afternoon. But Lord, I pray that we won't be people who just hail from a distance, but we'll be people who are willing to take up our cross, secure in the knowledge of your plan for us. And Lord, we would tread a life where it's your glory and your riches and your life and your joy evident in us as we lose ourselves and gain you. Lord, we pray that it be nothing less than your righteousness at work in us, that we might live life to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.